welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with researcher Gabrielle Fondaro. Hello. So it's great to have you, Gabrielle. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and just tell us about the work you do and, and what you specialize in? Sure. Um, so I have a background uh, in exercise science as my bachelor's degree. And then for my doctorate, I studied the effects of probiotic supplementation on metabolism. Uh, so that's how I got into studying the relationship between the gut microbiome and uh, metabolism and, and health outcomes. Um, I worked as an exercise science professor for several years, and then I resigned and uh, went the entrepreneurial route. I spent several years as an RP coach. I started my own business, Vitamin PhD Nutrition. Um, I've collaborated with Shannon Beer to develop the comprehensive coaching framework and the spectrum of intentional eating. And I also write for Examine and Barbend. And I do a lot of freelance and collaboration work with other awesome companies that really um, uh, also exemplify my values like Precision Nutrition. Um, and I am in the business of helping people change and helping people make informed decisions. Really? Uh, so something I hadn't heard a whole lot about before is the spectrum of intentional. Mm-hmm. So could you just explain that a little bit and what intentional eating looks like in practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So intentional eating is something that we developed because we wanted to move away from the more dogmatic approaches to nutrition uh, in terms of, you know, sometimes people are saying like, you know, they're pro diet or anti diet, or they want to be keto or they want to be vegan. And we propose that the quote unquote best approach for a person is one that meets them at the intersection of their goals. So it has to be something that's appropriate for their goal. So we wouldn't use a weight neutral approach if someone has a weight change goal. Uh, Their preferences. So it's something that is relatively sustainable for them. We don't want it to be so extreme and so invasive that it's only going to last for a few months and then they are going to, they won't be able to sustain it after that. Um, Except in maybe like really rare cases if someone's preparing for like a sport. And then it also has to be safe for them. So based on their experiences, have they used this approach in the past and how has it affected if they get really um, anxious or they feel kind of like they're neurotic about you know counting macros for example that's probably not going to be an, a great approach for them so we want to make sure that it's appropriate for their goals that it's relatively sustainable and that it is safe for them based on their experiences so what we did with the spectrum of intentional eating was we created a, um, a sort of a, a four quadrant graphic that divided the nutrition interventions by their weight neutrality or their weight focus. And then also whether they're more internally regulated by like hunger and fullness cues or externally regulated by things like a specific amount to eat or a specific time to eat. And it is a nutritionally agnostic, non-dogmatic approach. So we don't say that one approach is better for everyone or that one should be the end all be all goal for everyone. We say, if you are working with a client, you ask them about their preferences, their goals and their experiences, and you help them navigate to the proper approach for them. And you give them information about the pros and cons and the utility of that approach. And so they kind of know what to expect. And that it's also important that people are able to move from one quadrant to another. So a person isn't uh, obligated or stuck doing just one thing forever. We want to ensure that people have the skills and the tools and the knowledge they need to potentially move toward or away from a weight focused or an external 
externally regulated way so that if they want to sometimes use macros and it's not contraindicated for them, they can do that as a way to gather some information. And then if they want to transition back to um, eating in response to hunger and fullness or using something like hunger training or what I call RP eating, then they can do that and rely more on their uh, internal signals. And um, and something else that's really important is that you know people can uh, shift uh, toward or away from uh, a weight focus. So if a person doesn't want to be you know tracking their body weight or controlling it, then we want to ensure that they can uh, utilize weight neutral approaches as well. Interesting. So just like kind of aside from the tool, is it important? So something I think about, it's important to acknowledge sort of like how hard it is to change or manipulate your physique or your body weight, right? So it's like, I'm just thinking what someone comes to mind is like a client I had who uh, wanted to start a fat loss phase. But this client, when we discussed, you know, just kind of the challenges and the life stress they were under, like literally it was, I think it was probably the most stressful period ever been in in their life, right? Which kind of makes sense as to why someone might like be overweight or have obesity, right? So it's like, you just, you just don't have the resources to focus on your nutrition. So I guess, could you talk a little bit about that of like how to, I guess, I don't know how to, I'm not sure the question I'm asking exactly, but it's kind of just like the life stress or the challenges that we face, they almost run counter to like health in, in, and well-being in general, which is, would you say that's like a fair statement to make? Oh, absolutely. And, and ironically, when life feels really out of control and we feel like we're lacking agency, sometimes uh, going to macro counting or an intentional weight loss phase is one way that we try to regain a sense of control and agency in our lives um, and, and, and a sense of security. It can be a safe thing. We might think, oh, but if I look a certain way, if I lose weight, I'll feel happier. I'll look better. I'll fit better into society. I'll be more desirable um, because we're really given these messages by the fitness industry. You know, it's a way that dieting is marketed to say that this is a way for you to feel better about yourself. Uh, but really that's, that's a false sense of security. Um, and uh, and on the other hand, we want to meet clients where they are, you know, we, and, and it would be, um, it would be uh, misaligned with the comprehensive coaching approach to say, that's a bad idea. Or like, clearly you don't need to do that, or this is bad timing. Um, but instead to have a conversation with the client, you know, and just check in with them, like what needs are, are you trying to meet? You know, what has you thinking about counting macros again? Um, and, and to evoke, you know, the real reasons why and, and what they really actually uh, hope to achieve, which is usually that they want to feel like they are capable of doing something that they have some control in their lives and um in, in most cases they're going to realize oh actually counting macros right now is going to be really invasive um but maybe not maybe they'll say like i need to feel like i can do something <laughs> during the day and maybe they're looking at it from a place of like this is encouraging me to fuel myself more because i'm not eating and i don't have a great appetite and i just want to focus on protein so um it's it's really like the context again of the approach and you know is it going to be um mostly helpful to them or is it going to be mostly harmful to them and having a discussion so that they can identify that and then make an informed choice yeah make an informed choice is yeah very useful so i want to talk about the comprehensive coaching approach but before I do that so the reality of like uh health in the u.s right now and and kind of the, the world as well is like that the majority of people are overweight mm -hmm. so like how does that affect health and like how we look at health do you think as in like is it realistic for most, let's say, 50-year-old adult to be like, you know, of a normal weight, given that like challenges and how busy everybody is in life and like how uh, the majority of people are overweight? Is it realistic for people to be like, I should be of a normal weight, I should be of a healthy BMI? Mm, that's such a, that's a big question. I'll try and do justice to to all the parts of that answer. Um, so I think first we have to consider the uh, lack of a clear definition of health and that 
health is more than just the absence of disease. That's looking at one aspect of health, which is just physical. If we're thinking about it as a, a physical disease. Um, when, what we uh, set as sort of the outcome of comprehensive coaching is flourishing health, and that's prospering in all domains of life. So it would be physical, psychological, social, and philosophical. So a person could have a normal BMI and have uh, all normal uh, metabolic markers in their blood test, uh, but they have treatment-resistant depression and they haven't yet found uh, an effective treatment and they are struggling to function day to day. So would we consider that person to be healthy because, you know, their lab test came back normal uh, or a person who has severe social anxiety? And so they are physically healthy, but they um, haven't, they, they don't really have any friends. They don't have a support network. And so when they go through something difficult in life, they don't have anyone to turn to. Uh, you know, that person will really be lacking in the social domain. Or a person who is pursuing weight loss and they want to get that six pack and they achieve it. And then they're like, I don't feel any better about myself. Like, why did I do that? I thought that this was right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or they reach their goal weight and they're like, huh, uh, the, there's no pot at the end of this rainbow. And so they're really lacking in that philosophical area because they have done something that is not meaningful to them. They, they haven't been fulfilled by it. Um, so I, I just want to stress that, that when we're talking about health, it is much more complex than just physical health. And we can't assess a person's health based on just their appearance. Uh, and I know that that is a, a loaded and complex statement. And people might say, well, we could look at a person and estimate that they have a high level of adiposity. And the American Medical Association defined uh, or classified obesity as a disease, I believe back in 2013. Uh, and so if a person has obesity, then they are uh, by definition, no longer physically healthy. Now, metabolically healthy uh, obesity does exist. It's most likely a temporary uh, status uh, during which a person does have a high level of adiposity, but metabolically they are functioning normal. Um, they will probably lose that metabolic function over time. Now that can happen also as a result of aging, as we become more sedentary, as we lose muscle mass, um, as our diet changes because we have less access to uh, you know whole foods, then we can become less metabolically healthy, even if our BMI is normal. So we can't even really use like BMI as, as you know, the, the um, sole indication of someone. So when we're looking at lifestyles in the US, uh, and it's probably something, there, something that's shared in a lot of developed countries, we see a very individualistic, you know, personal responsibility narrative that if you have obesity or overweight, that that is your responsibility. And it's a result of your personal failings, your lack of self-control or willpower. We really know that that's not the case that actually eating behavior is regulated by a number of subconscious uh, or unconscious and conscious processes. And yes, we do live in a food environment that uh, promote eating and potentially overeating, especially of, you know, high energy density foods, hyper palatable foods. We in many uh, places in the U.S. live in areas that are not walkable. So we, and we don't have great public transit systems out here. Um, for example, you know, I've, I stayed in the UK for three and a half weeks. I didn't have a car and that was fine. I was able to walk anywhere that I needed to go. I could take the tube, the train. Um, you know, there were so many options. In the US, you really, in, in most cases, even in developed areas, metro areas, you need a car and people are commuting. They are working eight plus hours a day because we are also a very, um, you know, we're, we're 
capitalistic society and and like we are all about putting in as much possible as much work as possible and making as much money as possible and like that's a status thing too and we don't have a very um boundaried society that like really promotes uh reasonable work-life balance and you know even the basics like uh maternity leave and paternity leave you know so people are really expected to work as much as possible that they are driving everywhere they're eating foods that are high in energy high in calories and are convenient um, and are quick because they have to so that they can get from one thing to the next um, and then they have kids that are in you know a bunch of different sports and extracurricular activities and uh, they live far away sometimes from their families so family units have also changed so they sometimes have a really small or completely absent um, you know social support network so yeah when we're looking at the way we live in the U.S. and in other places in the world we're we're in a place that is not supportive of health in a very uh, comprehensive sense of the word in a really holistic sense of the word looking at all domains um so I think just focusing on on physical health like that that almost um that almost oversimplifies like the real issue you know and even when we're looking at eating behaviors sometimes people eat because they're bored they're stressed they're lonely they're procrastinating that's the only time of day that they're allowing themselves to have a break and so they they eat even when they're not hungry just because they're like I need to have a break but I can't just let myself stop working and take a break and take a nap because that's like that's lazy um and so that's that's my that's my soapbox speech for for health um that it's much more than physical health and that um yes our lifestyles really make it difficult to be physically healthy and to maintain uh our our body weight and to maintain weight loss um but the problems the obstacles are much bigger than just modifying the food and or just having anti-obesity campaigns that are trying to get people you know to exercise more uh it really overlooks the the many many obstacles that are really built into our whole infrastructure here that that keep people sedentary and disconnected and reliant on fast yeah it's a really tough situation i feel as though like uh, anyone who's trying to improve their health they should be you know handed a sort of like statistics or told like yeah it's uh it's really hard to improve your health holistically not just physically mm-hmm. and that like personal or not personal personal responsibility is a bit overrated mm-hmm. um so a comprehensive approach is needed yeah, absolutely yeah. yes because like you know when you think about that the rising tide lifts all boats like we are we have for many, many years aimed interventions at the individual level without addressing the institutional obstacles to change. And so probably what we need to do is say, like, how can we work together to help everyone have more equitable access to whole foods, to walkable environments, to rest, to um, a social, you know, to having um, fulfilling experiences and, and to say, like, okay, well, you know, we expect you to work to 10 hours a day and then commute and then you better hit the gym afterwards and then go pick your kids up and it's just like you know the the saying like we all have the same 24 hours in a day no we all have 24 hours in one day but they're not the same for every person and uh, I think that that's really what we're kind of missing out on is like if we could find ways to um, bring groups together that might have dissenting opinions like you know people who have very uh, individualistic opinions who think like it's personal responsibility they could 
could probably stand to learn from people who take a more institutional approach. And then the people who have take a really institutional approach could probably learn something about like how to uh, help people change at an individual level. You don't have to have one or the other, but it's really difficult to get like both groups on the same page. Yeah, it really is. So I'm just thinking of like, let's say a listener is like, oh yeah, but you know, if I just, you know, I'm, I'm overweight now according to the BMI scale. And if I just got to a healthy weight, I know I would be happy. They're like convinced. You can't tell them otherwise, right? I feel like that's like an idea that's out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as someone who's like been lean, mm-hmm. it's like you d- you're not any happier. You're actually, I would say I'm objectively less happy or subjective, whatever you want to say. I'm definitely less happy because mm-hmm. the, the whole comprehensive, you know, uh, life is missed. That whole yeah. part of life is, you know, it's only one factor in my life that's quote unquote thriving. And then everything else is falling by the way. So when you get lean, right? So what, uh, what would you say to that person who's like just convinced, like they can't be told otherwise that like, if I just lose this, you know, five pounds, 20 pounds, whatever it is, that I will be happier. But they haven't experienced that in, in so long. They kind of don't know how it feels. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say it totally makes sense that that's what you expect. Um, because we really see that a lot of people seem to send that message. And, um, and where did you get that message? You know, like what, like what makes you think? And I would ask that in a very sincerely curious way. Like, where did you hear this? And, and, and how do you know? And, um, and like, and then what would that look you know, at the end? Like, what does it look like to you when you are happy? What does your best day look like? And because we can't control weight specifically, like that is not a thing we can control. It's an outcome. Can we talk about some of the behaviors that you might want to engage in? If you want to feel better about yourself and feel happy, what are some of the things that you would like to do to help yourself feel happy right now? Because we don't have to wait. I wouldn't want a person to think that they have to wait to be a specific size to feel, to to enjoy. Um, But, you know, we also have to recognize that like the that the built environment is not made for people that are in very large bodies just like it's not made for people who are um outside the the norms of like height or left-handedness i mean i so i'm five feet tall and there are there are machines at the gym that i can't use it doesn't even they're modifiable they don't fit me at all and so if we can empathize with the people who uh, are experiencing that day to day we might be a little less prescriptive and um you know also and, and recognize like yeah you know it probably would be easier for you like the reality is it would be easier for you if you fit within these norms and also it is unfair that like you have to fit into these norms for it to be easy for you to navigate and like can we help to address um the other thing is you know if a person really uh believes that they will be happy at a specific size and also have a conversation about like, um, okay, if I could grant you that size, but you wouldn't be able to spend time with your friends and like, would, would ha- like, would you, would you want that? And like, usually no, like people don't want to give up their social lives or, um, you know, their connection with their partner or time with their kids or something. They, they want those things. And that's why it's so challenging for people to, um, when they, when they feel pulled in multiple directions, you know, it's not that they lack discipline or willpower. It's that they have competing values and they have friction and ambivalence there. Like, do I go to the gym or do I spend time with my kids? Uh, can I work out at home? Maybe it's going to be really short. Like is a 30 minute workout. Okay. And you know, am I neglecting my spouse by not spending time with them? And then what about who's going to make dinner? There are so many roles and responsibilities that we have. And so it is really difficult to, um, you know, to, to make, I don't want to say like make that time, but you know, to, um, 
determine like how to prioritize. Um, but when people are working toward a, a goal like that, usually it's because they think that like, yes, they'll feel happier, but they're also going to feel like more confident. They're going to feel, um, you know, more capable. They feel like they have more discipline. And so they think that that is a way for them to show that like they have these positive character traits, because again, it's a message that we're sort of sold, like people who lose weight are uh, dedicated, they're really hardworking. And so, uh, you know, the person really wants the experience of feeling that way. And they think that losing weight is the only way that they can do that. And so we can also discuss, you know, other ways of helping a person feel those things. Um, and if they still want to pursue intentional weight loss, you know, then we want to do that in the safest way possible with informed consent. So we can talk to them about the risks, uh, the potential risks of intentional weight loss, um, the the actual uh, sort of guaranteed outcomes versus what, what we think we might get. And if they still want to pursue that and we can do that in a safe way, then, you know, it's that person's body. Like they have bod bodily autonomy and they're going to pursue weight loss. Um, I take sort of a, uh, the approach of um, sex education, like abstinence only sex ed. People, it doesn't reduce teenage pregnancies. Uh, Has the opposite are, effect, I think, actually. Right, it? exactly. Yes, because you're not giving them any education about how to engage in safe sex. So I would not want a person to uh, try to pursue intentional weight loss and their only resource is like the worst options of like crash dieting and using weight loss pills. At the very least, I want to ensure that they understand like the safest possible ways and the potential risks. So that to me is like a, a comprehensive sex education instead of like, just don't have sex because it's risky. It's, well, here's how you put a condom on correctly. And here's how, you know, spermicide works so that people can make informed decisions and that they're still in charge of their bodies and that we aren't shaming them for whatever decision. Yeah, kind of meeting them where they're at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it so, I'll still get back to comprehensive coaching next, but uh, so just the personal responsibility, right? It's like, I feel like you can really flip that on your on their head, right? And say like, so in society, let's just say, you know, as a guy, people like Ronaldo, LeBron James, Elon Musk, all of these people, or like promoted as like successful right and then it's just like but um if you haven't thought about like your personal responsibility as it relates to your values you haven't um and, and you think those people are the people to fire to be like it's not a very uh how would i say very personal right they're just like generic people right so it's like if you really took personal responsibility and you looked at your values you would fire to be like somebody who is let's just say more realistic not like the greatest like athlete or the leanest person or you know somebody you might actually know in your community for example is that is that would that be an example of personal responsibility where you're like I'm a, a, a guy or girl I'm not going to try and be like the number one sports athlete or the richest person or the absolute number one I'm going to be like person who's in my local community who's like actually they've got a great life well when we um, talk about like the personal responsibility a lot of it is around weight controllability so uh, in the in literature on weight stigma and weight bias which are like our the um, beliefs we have about like the negative attributes of a person in a large body so we say like I a person has um, uh, weight bias if they believe that um, a person in a large body must be lean. And so weight controllability, our beliefs about weight, our beliefs about how easily we can control and modify our weight are mediate how much weight bias we have. So if we think that weight is very, and how many anti-fat, so if we believe that weight is very controllable and that is, you know, 100% or 99% uh, personal responsibility, it's just about our truth, then we are going to have a greater number of anti because we are going to assume then that this means that this person has made, even if we don't call it personal failings, uh, the wrong choice 
this person has made the wrong choices and that's what has led them to be in this large body and that we stigmatize that body size and we um and we value other body sizes over so we idealize the thin or um really fit lean body type and then stigmatize larger so when we say personal responsibility it's almost more of like a blaming um you know when we're talking about weight control if we're talking about a person's autonomy and like their agency to create change and their individuality and like that you know the their personality their values their identity um and the person says like i really identify as um you know my as a, being a parent i want to be a role model um being a member of my community i want to create safe spaces for people and um and i want and i also identify as a runner and so you know i want to engage in running because it's part of who i am and they go out and run all the time and they start a run club um then you know yes they still are taking personal responsibility for um starting the run club and for like going out and running and what but that's something that they have taken on themselves and not something that someone else has assigned they aren't saying like hey if you're a runner you better be out running every day like that's my version of a runner so it's you know it's your fault if you aren't successful as a runner um so that's what i mean by kind of like that differentiation like yes we do have and and like the other thing is too there is definitely a level of personal responsibility and a level of shared response that like you know when we're looking at things like wearing a condom or wearing a mask like you have to be the one to buy the mask or put the condom on or ask your partner to put the condom so there's like that level of okay this is my mask or this is my body i'm going to ensure that i'm protecting myself but also in doing this i'm helping to protect other people as well and so there's that shared level of responsibility of like if two people get into a room together and say, well, you know, I YOLO, I guess. I'm like, I'm not going to wear a mask or I'm not going to wear a condom and whatever. And there could be consequences of that. And both people may potentially suffer those consequences. Um, and so the same thing goes for, you know, if we're looking at health, um, even if we're looking at flourishing health, um, you know, if, if as a society, many, many, many of us are battling mental illness and physical diseases and don't have strong support networks, that's bad for everyone. And I don't mean bad in a blaming way. I mean, that is harmful to everyone that makes a society that is uh, less resilient and less connected and you know more likely to end up in kind of how we are which is like where we there the the last several years in this country have been extremely divisive um so yeah so i think that we do need to emphasize like there is a individual and shared ability and we don't want to point that out in a blaming way we really want to acknowledge all of the factors that might influence a person's uh likelihood of engaging in healthy behaviors because the, the more options we have to help people, the better. Why would we limit ourselves to just one thing when there are so many avenues that... Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's just a lot more nuance, nuance to it than just your fault or someone else's fault. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned like weight bias. And I'm just thinking of like, you know, it might be fine if someone's of a normal weight. But then, you know, if a, if a woman becomes pregnant or a guy adds on weight or whatever, they mm-hmm. might that weight bias that they might have going externally might bounce back on them. And they might be like, I'm a bad person because now I'm overweight. Mm-hmm. A terrible situation. Leads me to comprehensive culture. How does that help somebody who's like not as healthy as they would like to be? And they're like, they want to improve their nutrition. They want to improve their body composition. What do you guys do in in your work with with people in those situations? Yeah. So I do want to point out that what you've described there, when a person internalizes those beliefs, that's internalized weight stigma. And that predicts uh, body dissatisfaction and disordered eating independent of BM. It doesn't matter how much a person weighs. That if they have internalized those messages, then they will apply them to themselves. And that puts them in. So it's not so 
something that only affects people in large bodies. It is really something that affects people in any size body. It's just that people in large bodies are more likely to have experienced weight stigma and uh, also weight-based discrimination. So for things like, you know, being hired at a job or being harassed in public. Um, and then the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, body dissatisfaction is one of the main reasons why people want to pursue intentional weight loss, but it is associated with worse outcomes compared to people who are pursuing uh, weight change for health purposes. And it's also a predictor of, so when we're working with clients that have come to us, um, we, we like from, well, I mean, in the US or in any society where like there's a thin ideal, probably have internalized some of this weight stigma and they probably have these beliefs about themselves and about others. And they probably have some level of body dissatisfaction because it is incredibly prevalent, uh, especially among women. And so for them, pursuing intentional weight loss is even if they say like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to be healthy, um, that we really need to um, determine whether it is literally just about health, in which case we can improve health without necessarily pursuing intentional weight. Or if they've said that, but they also have some expectations about, you know, losing body weight and like looking a certain way and fitting better with a thin ideal. Because once again, like we want to ensure that we're not, you know, perpetuating harm and that we're not supporting the idea that yes, you have done something wrong or you failed because you've regained this weight. Now I can help fix you by helping you lose this weight without ever addressing anything like body image or your food relationship. Um, so if a person says like, I want to get healthier, like figure out well, what does that look like for you? What, how healthier in what way? How do you know that you're going to be healthier? What are the outcomes that we really want to see? And do you know that you're lacking health right now? I mean, do we have some lab tests or something? You know, because if it's just BMI, that really is just a proxy and that's not telling us anything about a person. But if a person says like, oh, you know, my family keeps pressuring me and I, you know, I'm, I, I overeat every time I go to uh, my grandma's house because she's always pushing food on me and I feel so uncomfortable, like emotionally and physically. And, um, you know, I'm not able to exercise right now and like my lipids are elevated. Okay, now that person has identified some areas in their life that they want to change that could actually improve their uh, multiple aspects. If a person says like, I just want to lose these last 10 pounds and, and there's nothing, they're not unhealthy. They don't, you know, metabolically, they're completely normal. They are completely functional. Um, then that really is just an aesthetic change. And not to say that there is necessarily something wrong with that. I mean, we get tattoos, we dye our hair, we get cosmetic surgery. It's, you know, a way that we modify our bodies to express ourselves or to shape ourselves into something that, you know, we like the look of. Um, but we also need to recognize that like that is just about changing your appearance and that it is a, a riskier process to lose weight intentionally for that reason versus, you know, losing a small percentage of weight because like that is what's linked to improvements in A1C. Very good. Yeah. So you're making me think that if somebody decides to pursue weight loss, fat loss, I should say, that uh, it should be made like more meaningful. It's like why more uh, approach fat loss in a more meaningful way. Is, there, is that like something that you've done with clients? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And help clients determine whether it actually is meaningful. And, and is it so meaningful that they want, that, they, that it makes sense to make the sacrifices that are necessary to pursue intention? And if not, then helping them to find another, another, because sometimes people have been dieting since they were teens, they've been dieting for 20 years. And it's a way that they, it's like a thing they do with their friends. You know, it's a thing to talk about. Um, it is a way to gain some social status. It's a way to, you know, like we were talking about earlier, gain a sense of role. Um, and that becomes kind of like the go-to 
outlet. And we really deserve more than that. Like we, we have other hobbies. We can travel. We can um, volunteer. You know, if a person's life has become um, stagnant or sort of engaged uh, because they, they can't, you know, they feel uncomfortable going into unpredictable food environments. They um, don't want, they don't feel comfortable, you know, missing a workout. Like if that has become their life and they don't like that, they're like, you know, I want to stop doing this. I want to be able to not count macros. I want to be able to have chips and peanut butter and what else ever else in my house without feeling like I'm going to binge on it, then we help people to um, regain or we help people to gain uh, a relationship with food and their body that kind of puts it in a more appropriate place for them. So food isn't such a preoccupation and it exists in their lives in a more proportional way to everything else. And it's the same thing with their body image that they, their, their level of body image dissatisfaction or body dissatisfaction becomes low enough, you know, we're probably like, everyone's going to have some level, but it becomes low enough that it's no longer like the primary driver behind the, a set of disordered eating habits or behind compulsive exercise. We're helping people not do these things like out of obligation. We're helping them to maybe uh, use, like, like I mentioned, macros as a tool, if that's something they want to do later on, but like they aren't uh, obligated to do that. They aren't doing it uh, in a rule-based way. Yeah, excessive exercise that you're obligated to do. That sounds like the most miserable thing I can mm-hmm. think of. I think everyone's done it at some point, but yeah, that, that's a miserable situation to be in. Mm-hmm. So I feel as though uh, in your work, you boost your clients like autonomy and self effort. Do you say mm-hmm. that's like fair to say? And did you talk a little bit about those terms? And like, mm-hmm. if there's like a lack of those autonomy and self efficacy in society when it comes to people's health overall? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is that. So comprehensive coaching for um, I'll give a, a little brief overview. So people kind of um, have an understanding and they can go to btgcomprehensivecoaching.com to learn more. Um, um, but comprehensive coaching is a framework that we developed and it's still in development and we're still changing it. We're adding to it. Um, but essentially it was a way to integrate and operationalize a few different interventions um, that both help coaches to facilitate a really productive discussion and help clients to navigate challenging internal and external environments. So the coaches uh, communicate in a way that is based on motivational interviewing, which is a way to have a conversation about about the possibility of change while respecting the client's autonomy and collaborating with them and expressing accurate empathy and uh, and reflections to evoke that person's own reasons for commitment to change. Now, it doesn't guarantee a change, but it increases the likelihood that they will make a change, which is great because we don't want them to do something just because we told them to do it and they only do it for a short period. We want them to really commit to it and know that it was their thing that they came up with and they went through with it and they can celebrate themselves. So that's what the coaches are doing. We're in, we are interacting with them in a motivational interviewing aligned way. And then we're providing them with knowledge and skills. Now the knowledge and skills might be specific to nutrition or exercise. But one thing that's really unique or specific to the model is that we're also providing them with skills to practice um, acceptance and uh, to establish more psychological flexibility by like, practicing acceptance and mindfulness, um, cognitive uh, behavioral coaching 
coaching uh, approaches so they can reframe unhelpful thoughts um, and then kind of uh, other skills that might be applied specifically to nutrition, like um, mindful eating uh, or, you know, being able to determine their emotional state and then to better be able to determine and meet their own needs. And the result of that is that the client has a greater capacity to navigate the internal and external environments to set and meet their own goals. And they have greater self-efficacy because they've gathered so much evidence that they can uh, be met with challenges and overcome them or move through them. And that we really are working toward that flourishing health model because we're working with them on more than just physical health. We're helping them to improve their body image, um, their relationship with food, sometimes their uh, social connections, you know, how meaningful uh, things are for them. Like, are they doing things intentionally based on their values? That um, so that's comprehensive coaching. And uh, so, yeah, a big part of that is respecting their autonomy and meeting them where they are and collaborating to help them come up with their own um, goals, their own plan for change. So we come with our expertise in training and nutrition, and then they come with their own expertise on themselves because they're going to be the best ones to know when their schedule is really crazy, um, you know, when they're going to be really likely to, you know, wake up uh, and exercise or not, and, you know, whether they're going to be be um, practicing all of their skills like when they go on vacation and it's really just it's our role to help them um, figure out like what is meaningful that to them and why and the best ways to go about it and then the the actual change is is their responsibility we can't take credit for that they still have to go do the things but the beautiful part of that is now as coaches our uh, we don't have to like our um, service isn't reliant on their we provided the experience Experience of giving them this safe space and communicating and collaborating with them. That's what we provide. And we can, we can really guarantee, I can, I know I can provide you with this experience. I don't know that I can provide you with results because the results are going to be based on what you're doing. And so it removes that um, lack of control from us, you know, and that sort of like, oh gosh, I really have to get this person results, like no matter what, because otherwise you're not going to keep working with me. No, they're going to keep working with me because I provide them this experience and the results are their own. And when they see results, results, then they can celebrate. They did that. They put in that work. And it wasn't just like, you know, that I told them what to do and, and I knew what the, what I knew the right stuff to tell them that, that they were able to do. And so that's another um, unique aspect that um, is, that kind of sets this approach, I think, apart from maybe more like traditional approaches that are really like outcome-based, you know, like look at the before and after picture type of thing. Um, and, and, it, and it applies to a lot more as well, because we don't have to just work with macros or nutrition. Like we really help people um, do things that can sometimes be unexpected, but are just really like a, a lovely byproduct of like all of the changes that they've made that have helped them to um, have more psychological flexibility. Brilliant. Yeah, you just reminded me of the point I wanted to ask about. So can you explain accurate empathy and psychological flexibility? But mm -hmm. also just another point I was thinking of earlier. So, you know, the majority of people, uh, or sorry, common goal is, to, mm -hmm. is, is fat loss, right? But what is it? Is there like, there's a, I feel like there's a research finding where weight loss is possible or often occurs Mm -hmm. outside of intentional weight loss due to something else but there's something else that causes as a byproduct causes weight loss when people aren't intentionally trying to lose lose weight what is, what is that uh, well just a like an accidental uh energy deficit, you know like we we don't necessarily that's and that's why like a weight neutral approach isn't anti-weight the difference between a weight focused versus a weight neutral is that in a weight focused approach we are engaging in these behaviors in order to lose body so the outcome that we're aiming for is lower body and we might focus less on the process and more on the out 
Whereas a weight neutral approach says body weight is not a behavior and we're only focusing on behaviors. We're focusing on behaviors that have been linked to improvements and like walking or eating more vegetables or practicing yoga. Um, and those are the behaviors. So that's what we're focused. A person may still lose weight or gain weight or remain weight stable when, per, when engaging in a weight neutral approach. If a person uh, was, you know, chronically under fueling and had red S, had relative energy deficiency syndrome and was compulsively exercising and overtraining and they have, um, you know, they've started to develop some overuse injuries and they shift to a weight neutral approach. It's pretty likely that they probably will gain some weight because they are going to be eating more than they were before because now they're going to be like not restricting as much and they're probably going to be exercising less. So that energy balance is going to shift to where they're in uh, a little bit of an energy. If on the other hand, a person was often eating when they weren't hungry, they were eating past the point of fullness and they were sedentary and they were eating a lot of restaurant food, then that person may gain weight. I mean, excuse me, may lose weight when they're pursuing this weight neutral approach. If they have started to make more food at home, go on walks, um, you know, and eat smaller portions or something like that, or, or like start to be able to notice hunger and eat. So it still is about the behaviors and we're just letting weight do what it's going to do. That's not the goal. The goal is to establish these. And um, really that's like when we look at long-term weight loss in the all portion of people who maintain their weight loss long term, it really is about the behaviors that they're engaging in, that they engage in regular physical activity, um, that they may have a general sense of how much they're eating, but they're not like tracking macros every single day. And they're not necessarily restricting, but they're not having, uh, you know, crazy weekends where they're like, oh my gosh, I've been so restricted all week. And now on the weekend, I'm gonna, you know, have a planned binge. They're just kind of eating, you know, their habits around nutrition and exercise are pretty stable. Um, so that's one way that we can help people to make lasting changes that we focus more on the behaviors instead of and also to help them gain better self-efficacy because outcomes are not controlled like a person if a person's uh, confidence about their abilities is based on what the scale is going to do then they're going to be up and down all whereas if their confidence in their abilities is based on what they have done then we help them set really realistic goals and then when they do that thing they've done the thing and like that's the evidence they needed that they're able to do the thing and then we just say like okay weight is really uncontrollable and like let's look at all of the other effects of your new habits and like how you're feeling and everything like that. So does it really matter if the scale has has gone down or up or or stopped? So like even if you're pursuing intentional weight loss, like you can make adjustments for that, but don't forget to point out that they're succeeding in these all of you. Um, so hopefully that answers. And then I think you had asked about uh, psychological flexibility and some uh, accurate. Em- okay, yeah, yeah, accurate empathy. Um, so accurate empathy. So people are probably familiar with sympathy. So sympathy is like feeling bad for some. Sorry about someone's lot in life, something has, whereas empathy is really sharing in a person's uh, emotional experience, you know, not over identifying to where you get completely overwhelmed by the emotions they're feeling, but it's just the ability to imagine how would I feel in that situation? I would feel frustrated. And then stating to them, that must be really frustrating. So that's the, the empathy is just the internal experience of like kind of guessing like, oh, oh, I can relate to that. And then the accurate empathy is expressing in a reflection. Oh, that must be really frustrating. Or you must have been so excited. So we're showing like, I understand how you're feeling. So what that does is it, it's a, it's an invitation. Well, both it shows that you uh, understand the person, which is really important for establishing rapport, but also it invites 
invites them to give you some feedback of like, yes, it was frustrating. Or they might say, no, actually I was a little bit more sad. And now you have a better understanding. Um, that's accurate empathy. So psychological flexibility is um, another word for kind of being like uh, mindful of the present moment. So when people practice mindfulness, they're kind of, they're tuning into the present moment. So it's just um, being able to be in the moment, you're aware of your emotions and your sensations, um, your your thoughts, your beliefs, uh, without necessarily attaching to any one of them. So it's the ability to kind of tune in to what's going on in your head in the moment and say, mm, okay, I noticed that I'm thinking this, or I noticed that I'm feeling this. And then to say, but I don't necessarily have to believe that. And also, but I'm not that emotion. I don't have to, you know, I'm not overwhelmed. So when a person, for example, you know, is uh, working on their relationship, and they go to um, uh, like a work event, a work meeting, and there are tons, there's well, tons of food there and a lot of cookies. And in the past, they've said like, I can't be around cookies. I think I'm addicted to cookies and, uh, you know, I'm out of control. And we're working with them and they're uh, establishing more psychological flexibility. They might see those cookies and then notice, oh, okay, I'm feeling really anxious because I'm in this, you know, the cookies are here. I'm noticing the thought that um, I'm afraid that I'm going to eat, you know, too much. Or if I eat a cookie, I'm going to feel really guilty. Okay, but I don't necessarily have to believe because cookies aren't bad foods. There's no bad food. I just notice that I'm feeling, you know, this anxiety and that can just exist. And I can still choose to one cookie and really enjoy it and engage with my coworkers and, you know, navigate this moment in a way that's aligned with my values, even though I might also have some difficult emotions or thoughts going. Yeah, interesting. It's like uh, we do have the autonomy or the ability to like have foods we like mm-hmm. and sort of have our cake, but not eat. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's, it. It's a very like counter sort of like, I don't know, not counterculture, but it's like, yeah, just counter to the idea that's out there about like how people eat. It's like, it's a skill for sure to master. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I would say that you're one of the, obviously I don't know all the experts on the gut that, you know, are out there, but that's like a science communicator. I would say that like you're definitely one of the best that are out there. Um, so what can you tell us for certain about gut health? You know, what are some of the common misconceptions that are out there? Um, well, I, there, there's not a lot that we know for certain about gut um, Even the definition of gut health uh, is lacking. Um, so I, I kind of come up with a working definition of gut health based on lots of conversations and lots of reading and lots of writing um, because gut health isn't really a term that's used in the research. Like there, we aren't, we don't have metrics to assess gut health. There's not like a gut health questionnaire. You know, we have, we have uh, gastrointestinal symptom questionnaires and like disease specific quality of life questionnaires. We can do a biopsy to look at the, at your intestinal wall. Um, we can take a fecal sample and we can quantify and qualify uh, the microbes that are present, but we don't have a, a gut health assessment. Uh, the best thing we probably have at the moment is um, a dysbiosis index that has been developed uh, or has been um, coined in labs that are then using that to create tool analysis tests, like direct to consumer stool analysis. So gut health generally refers to um, the diversity of the gut microbiome. So the gut microbiome refers to all of the microbes and the genetic material of the uh, that that reside in your uh, gastrointestinal tract. So that's your small and large intestine. You also have a gastric microbiome. You have an oral microbiome. You have a skin microbiome. And women have a vaginal microbiome. So we actually are populated by multiple uh, microbiome. You can think of them all as sort of different ecosystems. So if the skin uh, is the an ecosystem of like the desert, then your gut microbiome would be like uh, the 
Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it's it's vast, uh, incredibly diverse, um, and incredibly complex because each one of those microorganisms is interacting with uh, the environment, with the nutrients that are available, and with one another. And so we've got bacteria, archaea, um, fungi like yeast. We have bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria, and they're all interacting with one another in ways that we haven't yet been able to unravel. So the the microbiome itself is very, and that resides in the intestinal tract. So now we can can say that the the second part of this is the digestive tract itself. Is there a disease present? Is the disease being managed? Is the disease functional, like IBS that just affects the function? Or is it organic, irritable, uh, like uh, um, inflammatory bowel disease that affects the tissues as well? Because if the environment is affected, whether it's anatomy or physiology, that could have an effect on the microbiome. But again, it's a very complex system. We're talking about two complex systems now. We're talking about a disease process and the functionality of an organ system and this whole microbiome, which is essentially like an ecosystem. And then the third aspect of gut health would be digestion. So that's the assimilation of nutrients from our food. Now, those nutrients are going to be utilized both by the microbes and also by our intestinal cells. So again, we have another factor here that is interacting with the other two factors. And so when we try to say like, this will improve your gut health, I'm like, what part, you know, because there's a lot going on there. And also we even have just like the subjective experience of the result of digestion and microbial fermentation, which is to say, how comfortable are your bowel moves? How bloated do you? Are you having a lot of flatulence today? So gut health doesn't have one, one specific depth. And when a company or a person is seeing that they're selling something or they're doing something to improve gut health, uh, it is really more of like a marketing term and an umbrella term that, that means nothing. And so it can mean any. So people are like, oh, this will improve my gut health. They have a lot of gas and bloating. They probably will assume this will make me less gassy and bloated. Or if they have irritable bowel syndrome, they might assume this could help with my irritable bowel syndrome. Or if they've taken one of these comprehensive stool analysis tests, which is also problematic, they might look at this and say, oh, this will make my gut microbiome more diverse. And like those could all be true or only one or none of them could be. But like we haven't actually defined like what does this product or this intervention actually do? And how do we know that what it does is linked to this specific perceptible? So with these comprehensive stool analysis tests and and with the um, kind of like the way that that's promoted and the way that that it um, integrates for like the rest of gut health marketing is that it's it uses a stool sample uh, and it uses research methods that we would use to assess any other stool sample. Um, So you send in your stool sample and then they send you back this report that says like these are the microbes that were detected. Some of them will have like inflammatory markers or something. And then it says here's where you fall within this specific reference. Well, the issue is that we don't actually have reference ranges set for microbiome for microbiota in the same like not like we have for LDL cholesterol and even those don't necessarily these reference ranges have been established by uh, that lab based on one or maybe two research articles um, that had a healthy cohort and then a cohort with some form of disease now the issue is that we don't have a definition of healthy microbiome we don't have one profile that we're like yes we know that this is healthy uh, and healthy individuals around the world will have different sets of microbiome and so they will look very different from one another if we're looking at like a a dissimilarity. So if we say, okay, well, you have dysbiosis because you're really different from the healthy participants. Dysbiosis doesn't mean anything wrong. It just means that you're very different from these healthy participants. But it could have been because those participants were mostly females in the United States and you're a male living in the U.S. Not that anything's wrong with your gut because we don't have that. Just in the same way that we don't have just one specific definition of dysbiosis. It just means different from the control group, different from the health. And we haven't even really been able to identify that many disease-specific characteristics. 
characteristics where we can say like, oh, okay, all people with irritable bowel syndrome have an overabundance of this specific mic. We've looked at tons and tons of people with IBS and tons and tons of healthy controls from around the world. And we can say for sure, this microbe definitely plays a role in disease. We haven't established a causal relationship between uh, the microbiome and any disease or health outcome. And in most cases, save for, you know, some foodborne illnesses, we don't have a, a cause and effect relationship between microbes and disease processes. You can be colonized with a potential pathogen without having uh, any of the disease that that pathogen could. So it's much more complex than saying you have good, you have bad gut, or we can fix your gut. It's, it's a, a complex ecosystem within an organ system that is that has a number of different, and we are just now uh, developing technology that allows us to analyze fecal samples with a really, really high resolution to be able to look at all of the microbes, not just, and to get a sense of functionality of the microbiome and then also who's doing what. But we may never be able to establish a cause and effect between a microbiome, a whole microbiome disease, because it's too complex and because probably are just some number of microbes that may have a causal uh, relationship and then the rest don't. That's kind of where we are. Wow. So you're making me think of uh, just money and, and how, you know, if someone was to say, oh, I'll, I'll make you rich or, you know, do this and you'll get, you'll get like, I think we've learned over time to like run from that type of person <laughs> just basically because they're speaking without nuance, right? It's like, you know, mm-hmm. if that if, if it was that easy to make money, everyone would be rich, right? But yeah, I think because gut health is like newer onto the scene, it's kind of people speak in black and white terms because I guess they don't know a whole lot about it. It requires the nuance that you've just given to fully understand it, which is, is very, very useful. So just the final question that I have is on the, the supplement uh, super gut and just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, supplements for the gut in general. How should people approach them? What are your thoughts on this specific supplement? And uh, is there any supplements that actually have been shown to benefit gut? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we look at supplements for gut health, um, they're going to be generally either a prebiotic, a probiotic, or a symbiotic. And then there are some like herbs and essential oils and stuff. So those are kind of like the things that are are usually marketed for gut health. Um, so a prebiotic, well, I'll start with probiotic are live microorganisms that when ingested uh, in adequate amounts confer some benefit to the host. And then a prebiotic is a nutrient source used preferentially by benefits. So it's just something you feed them. And a symbiotic includes both uh, live microorganisms and also their preferred energy source or what we think might be. So uh, in this case, this is a prebiotic supplement and uh, prebiotics are by definition used by beneficial microbes. So that would be an accurate statement to say like, yeah, beneficial microbes might use this. Once you ingest it, it uh, bypasses your digestive, or once you ingest it, bypasses your digestive enzymes. Uh, I think in this case, it was resistant starch. So it resists your digestive enzymes, reaches the colon or large intestine, and then microbes there can use it to produce ATP. Um, but the the thing that I think is uh, maybe less scrupulous is, is the lack of information about prebiotics that you can get from just food. You don't you don't need to take a supplement. You prebiotics are available in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. Um, so you can ingest um, now resistant starch is one that can occur naturally. It can also be added to foods. You can produce some by repeated um, heating and cooling of potatoes, rice. Um, and in this case, they uh, you know provided an RCT, so a randomized double blind control trial. Um, it's one that's not peer reviewed, so it's that's something to keep in mind that like a, a group of peers haven't looked at this and said like yes, the design is appropriate. These outcomes are are appropriate, and your statistics are done well and everything like that. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see that um, you know that there were changes to the microbiota because now we're providing them with a large dose of uh, an energy source, and there are going to be some microbes that really thrive on that, and they might outcompete some of the other microbes that might want a different 
energy source. And so we would probably see some changes. We don't know what the clinical outcome, even though the people did experience some clinical outcomes. So they had some improvements in like quality of life. Um, others were, were more subjective, like brain fog. We don't necessarily know that that was um, a result of like changes to the microbiome itself, because we don't have a link between a causative link between the microbiome or microbes. And, um, so uh, if a person wants to eat more prebiotics, they can do so in a more cost-effective way by eating more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, everything from that list. Um, probiotics do have specific applications. So I would recommend checking out AE ProBio because they have a really excellent free resource to help people determine uh, whether to take a probiotic and which. Um, would, so if they have like diarrhea, IBS, IBD, those are some um, logical. Um, and the same thing with, uh, with a symbiotic, they can also be kind of specifically effective, but you really have to take the right strain for whatever issue you're facing. Uh, another one that I know off the top of my head that is helpful is uh, peppermint oil can, uh, seems to reduce um, some of the abdominal pain associated with IBS. Um, and then also uh, gut-directed hypnotherapy and uh, CBT are some other alternative um, treatments for some of the symptoms. Um, now, in a lot of cases, the more um, psychologically-based interventions aren't actually modifying disease. So if you have uh, IBD or IBS, it's not your, the physical effects of the disease will still be present, but it seems to really help with the perception of the discomfort. Yeah, with, with that study, it's like, don't know if the researchers said this will improve some outcome, take this up to be like a big kind of question I'd be wondering. So like, if it was peer reviewed, imagine that like something like that would have been kind of like mm-hmm. double checked. The placebo effect, of course, would be like strong. Yes, I forgot to mention that. So there actually was a study that I just um, broke down for the for my gut health webinar. Group. Um, it, and it was on a, a placebo treat IBS, a placebo intervention. And they gave them the one group got like, a known placebo, and the other one got double blind placebo. So everyone got a placebo. And even in the group that knew they were getting a placebo, their symptoms, they felt better. So yes, absolutely. The placebo effect is a real thing. And also it could potentially be an ethical treatment. If you said this is a placebo, it's a sugar, it could help you feel better. It's not going to have any physical effects on your disease. And they're like, but it's all, and it's not also not going to harm you. I'm like, sure. In addition to my other treatments, I would also like to take this placebo and then you feel better. It makes me think of, that's, that's fascinating. That it makes me think of the personal responsibility thing. And it's kind of like, if uh, I know this is like almost faulty logic, but it's kind of just like, if you uh, think that you have control, it could allow your behaviors to align, to act in a certain way that might be able to improve your health. As you've said, I think research says that that personal responsibility and blaming is ineffective. Is that fair? The blaming would definitely be in But a person's beliefs about controllability, that is kind of a, a, a sliding scale. It could be helpful if a person says like, okay, I know that I can modify my body weight by changing energy balance. And so I feel efficacious about this. Like I, I know that I can do then that actually could support their behavior. But if they go to extremes of like, I am the only thing that's in control of my body weight. If I have regained weight, it's because of a personal failing, then that person is more likely to use restrictive dietary habits and potentially develop disordered eating habits um, because they have internalized really kind of a different message, a much more extreme message than the, I can modify this. I am one of many factors that modifies and regulates my body weight. And it is very difficult to maintain. And I need to you know keep that in mind that I'm going to have to have some level of sacrifice um, to, to achieve a, you know, a really extreme physique. Um, but like helping a person find that balance of here's what I know that I can change 
doing what I'm in charge of realistically versus this is my responsibility. Yeah, I feel like there's an element of mindfulness that's required there to be like what I can affect and this is what I can. Great. All right, Gabrielle, thanks so much for your time. Is there any kind of like links, uh, events you have coming up or anything you want to plug? Yeah, sure. So um, people can get in touch with me on Instagram at vitamin PhD. My website is vitamin PhD nutrition.com. Next month, I'm going to be releasing all uh, all 12 of the gut health webinars that I've uh, hosted or had speakers on for um, and all of the research breakdowns that I've uh, presented. So things, cool things like, yeah, the placebo treatment, um, using helminths as a, as a therapy. So like actually giving people a parasitic infection for a short period of time. So I've tried to find some cool, weird um, publications out there. So people can, next month, we're going to And um, just uh,